Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to bring an episode out of the vault for viewing. Uh, I guess it wouldn't be viewing because it's audio. For listening. Uh, this is part one of our series on the fall of Valyrian. This one originally published on July 19th, 2022. Let's jump right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Rob, do, do what's what's that sound? Is that the sound of us digging down a historical rabbit hole that you got interested in? What what are we doing today? Oh, in this episode, we are going to talk about the fall of Valerian, Emperor Valerian of Rome. Uh, this is this is this is going to be, a, I think, a, a fun one. Even though this is this is certainly going to be more of a historical direction. Not the first time that we've uh, we, we've gone down a historical rabbit hole, as you say. But I think, as always, it's important to remember in this context, you know, what histories are. It's kind of like you have, you have, uh, you know, histories with a capital H and histories with a lowercase h. Um, Histories in in general, written histories, oral histories, passed down histories, uh, resurrected histories, are accounts of the past that very often have viewpoints, biases, agendas, uh, they're constructed from memories, evidence, and pre-existing accounts, all of which are subject to error. In short, interest in history is not only a matter of what happened, uh, but also why did this version of what happened happen? Why is this the account that was written down or told to others? And um, these are all interesting questions to ask about the fall of Emperor Valerian, uh, questions that still remain today about well, what actually happened to him, also how did the defeat go down, uh, but, but mostly what was his ultimate fate? 
Ah, so here you're interested not only in a question of history, as in what's the best we can figure out what happened in the past, but a question of historiography. Why did certain historians of the past write about history in a certain way? Yeah, and I think ultimately this is a story that is interesting on both counts because it's also fascinating to to look at, at the various histories and piece together in your mind this story of just countless uh, on the, M- in the Roman imperial side, you know, just constant uh, overthrow and backstabbing uh, this uh, th- this this era of chaos. Uh, that sees just uh, emperor after emperor fall uh, to all of the infighting in Rome, uh, as well as to some of the uh, uh, the fighting uh, on the borders of the Roman Empire as well. And yeah, then there's also this this question of of well, what are these different stories regarding the fate of Valerian, and what do they mean, and how are we supposed to interpret them uh, uh, from our modern standpoint? So I, I'm just curious, how did you get interested in this in particular? This question about what happened to Emperor Valerian. I think this was one of those kind of just tangents during research where I just, I I was working on something else and then I was curious, I was looking into maybe various um, uh, emperors and uh, the the fall of various emperors. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I started, I think I initially just clicked on, uh, on just a, like a basic page about Valerian and, uh, you know, and read some, some grisly, uh, details about what might've happened to him. And that got me thinking, it's like, well, this sound, this is really severe. You know, what were the ramifications of this? And then I started digging in a little deeper. Classic rabbit hole dynamics. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So to begin with, let's talk about where we're going to go and what time period we're we're traveling to for the most part here. Uh, We have to journey to the Roman Empire during a time that is known as the crisis of the third century, a period of decades lasting from 235 to 284 CE, during which the Roman Empire was just defined by anarchy and strife, a time during which it nearly collapsed. One of the books that I uh, was looking to for this uh, is actually, it's an older history book, a, a series of, of popular history books uh, came out many decades ago from Will Durant. Uh, the, uh, this is the story of civilization. And uh, there's one section in the book that deals with, uh, primarily with, uh, with the Romans titled uh, The Collapse of the Empire. And there's a, a great quote I want to read from that. Quote, we shall not repeat in bloody detail the names and battles and deaths of these emperors of anarchy. In the 35 years between Alexander Severus and Aurelian, 37 men were proclaimed emperors. I, I'm going to say it. That's too many emperors. That's too many. That is. <laughs> it is. It's, that, is just, that, is, that is a lot of emperors to go through in such a short period of time. And like Will Durant, we are not going to go through all of them. We're going to mention some of them just to give you a little color for just how much turmoil, how much turnover there was. This was a time period during which there was, there was really not any job security to being the emperor of Rome. You know, one thing that's uh, always interesting to me about Roman history is not just that basically that all Roman emperors are bad leaders by modern morals and modern standards, (laughs) but that most Roman emperors were bad leaders by Roman standards. Yeah, there, there's when you start talking about well, who are the worst emperors? It's you can draw up a pretty exhaustive list, uh, and then there actually there are actually some some pretty uh, pretty fun lists of this short you can find on, on the internet. But uh, a number of really bad ones do occur during this time. Some of the other really famous bad ones occur prior to this period. 
But uh, yeah, the crisis of the third century runs from 235 to 284. So that raises the question, what do these dates mean? Let's start with 235. In the year 235, uh, the emperor Severus Alexander is assassinated by his own troops. Mm. So Alexander was, had been named emperor at age 14. And he was a progressive figure in many respects who sought to restore the power of the Senate and the aristocracy and to weaken the dominance of the Roman military. So he built libraries, public baths, and other works in the empire. He engaged in various economic programs to bring down interest rates and also help the poor. Now, I say progressive in many respects because he also enforced various morality-based laws that saw the arrest of prostitutes, the deportation of homosexuals. Uh, still, consider that previous emperors included the likes of Caligula, Nero, and Commodus. Uh, these are all names that, I, uh, that probably ring a bell in everyone's head. You, you know some of the stories about these individuals. Even if that scene from the movie where Caligula chops off people's heads with a lawnmower didn't really happen in history, Caligula was a really bad guy. Yeah, it's still kind of in the spirit of Caligula. So Alexander's immediate predecessor was an emperor by the name of Elagabalus, who had died at age 18 following a short reign that's noted mostly for scandals and excess Though Durant notes that uh, something you have to keep in mind, I guess, with a lot of these individuals is that um, at least some of these scandals were probably fabricated by enemies, of which um, uh, Elagabalus had many in the senatorial class. So mm -hmm. uh, just a, one, of, uh, one of the many examples we'll be pointing to in this episode uh, where history and the truth is, of course, tweaked uh, to serve some sort of an agenda. But by, by all accounts, still not a great emperor. He hosted weird lotteries. And there's actually an excellent horrible history sketch from the, uh, the, the historical comedy uh, show on British television about this. Oh, you shared this with me, but I'm sorry I did not have time to watch it yet. I'm, I, I can't wait to once we're done here. Basically, I mean, the, the, the story is that, yeah, he was like, well, let's have a lottery. Let's, let's have some fun, uh, Romans. Uh, but you might win some money or a house, but you also might win just a whole bunch of flies or a poisonous snake <laughs> sort of thing. So it was weird. I, you know, in a way, it was, it was kind of like very strange uh, reality television of uh, this time period. Huh. Um, so I remember uh, Elagabalus has come up on the show at least once before because it was in our invention episode on the history of air conditioning. And there's yeah. a story told by I, I'm sorry, I forget the Roman historian, but somebody tells a story about uh, Elagabalus cooling his uh, his orchard or his, you know, the courtyard at his palace by having people bring down snow from the tops of a nearby mountain and oh, pile yeah. it up <laughs> just to, like, keep <laughs> things cool in the summer, uh, which uh, overall is very inefficient. But I think we decided, well, if there's a huge block of snow, that would actually sort of cool off the area, especially if there's, like, breeze blowing over it. Uh, so this is, uh, I guess if that's true, uh, clever, but also kind of, kind of excessive. Uh, but then again, we, we also addressed the question of whether or not that was true, because I think the historian who told that story was a marked adversary of the legacy of this emperor. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it, now and it and may have seem... just been trying to make him look stupid. 
Right. And like, and also if you're, if you happen to be this teenage emperor of Rome, I mean, maybe you just ask that they bring snow to your house once and then your enemies find out about it. And they're like, he brings snow to his house every day. It's the, 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 the most uh, extravagant thing I've ever heard of. Oh yeah. Remember when he created Ice Town? <laughs> At any rate, about the only good thing to say about him, it seems, is that he did seem interested in bolstering religious freedom in the empire if only so he could keep worshiping the Syrian god Baal himself. So when Severus Alexander becomes emperor at age 14, the same as his predecessor, uh, things, I guess, seem to be moving in a different direction, and his rule proves stable, uh, lasting 13 years, the longest reign of a single emperor in decades at that point. Uh, He was a temperate figure, and especially early on, uh, his mother commanded commanded a great deal of power through him, and I think was was always a powerful figure uh, in his um, administration, if you will. Uh, Together, they showed a a certain amount of openness to the practice of Judaism and Christianity within the empire. They even lowered taxes, but of course, he courted a powerful enemy in attempting to reduce the power of the Roman military. And Rome had many external enemies during this time, including the Sasanian Empire, uh, sometimes referred to as the uh, Sasanid Empire, or sometimes referred to as as a dynasty uh, rather than an empire. This uh, is located in Persia, and at this point in time, only recently established in 224 uh, by the founder, uh, Adashir I. So about eight years into Alexander's rule, the Sasanian army under Adashir in, uh, invades Mesopotamia and threatens Roman-held Syria. So Alexander initially responds by basically sending him a statement condemning the violence of the invasion and telling him, look, everyone should be content with current borders and domains, and also kind of warning him, if, if you're going to mess with Rome, you're not going to find it as easy as uh, the wars you've been, uh, you've been waging previously. Now, Adashir, perhaps interpreting this as weakness, then follows up by demanding all of Syria and Asia Minor from Rome. And this results in a direct military response from Alexander, and he manages to push uh, Sasanian forces out of Mesopotamia by 233. But that's when Rome's Germanic enemies to the north, the Alemanni and the Marcomanni, attack, uh, taking advantage of depleted northern forces to attack Gaul. So Alexander and his mother, they rejoin the army, having only just briefly celebrated um, a sort of victory over the Sasanians, and he leads the army to meet this new threat. On his mother's advice, he pushes for peace with the Germanic tribes, offering annual payments to keep them in check. His own troops reportedly see this as weakness. Uh, they also seem to um, you know, have issues with his mother's presence. Uh, and so they, and of course, on top of all this, they still hate him for his work against the military. And so mm-hmm. they, they, uh, they mutiny against Alexander and they assassinate him, his mother, and some of his, um, his key people. And this is, this is the point where we begin these, uh, these decades of chaos. This is when we begin the crisis of the third century. Okay, so the young emperor, his mom are dead. They're 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 out of power. Who's coming up next? Who who do they put in? Well, a military man, of course. Uh, they lift up um, Maximinus Thrax, a sixty-two-year-old commander, and his rule would last a mere three years. 
uh, because everything just descends into civil war and death at this point, uh, beginning the, the crisis of the third century uh, in earnest and immediately bringing about the what is sometimes called the year of six emperors in 238, when six different men claim to be emperor of Rome. Man, you thought two popes at the same time was too much. Yeah. So the following decades, yes, were in fact just bloody and chaotic with, again, 37 different proclaimed Roman emperors during uh, just a 35-year time period. Internal factors weaken the state, foreign enemies threatened on every front. Uh, this period of crisis lasted until 284 when the empire was stabilized once more with the reign of Diocletian, who reigned 21 years and then voluntarily retired and died of, get this, natural causes. Um, all of this stands in stark contrast to the short, bloody, and doomed reigns of most of the emperors preceding him. Diocletian is an interesting figure. Uh, I'm certainly no expert on his life, but I know one thing about him is that uh, he actually had the, the 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 unusual seeming insight that uh, maybe hereditary rule is stupid and causing a lot of problems because if you're just like handing trying to hand power off to your son your son might not actually be good at anything and might not be very smart so instead what you should have is a system where power is shared between I think the idea he came up with was the tetrarchy that there would be four rulers who would mm. rule over different parts of the empire they would make decisions together Together, and then, then after they were in charge, they would pass on their office not to their sons, but to like uh, pe basically uh, people, their mentees, people who they had trained uh, allegedly on the basis of merit. Though I think that pretty quickly devolved into hereditary rule again with uh, Constantine's father trying to pass stuff on to Constantine. Yeah, yeah. This this whole question over hereditary rule is interesting because I mean, from a modern perspective, we look at it and we th and we say, well, this that is it's obviously a bad idea. Um, <laughs> there's so much that can go wrong with it. And you look at these historical examples of of 14 year old emperors, and it just seems insane. Like uh, my son, I have to realize with horror, will be 14 in four years. Um, I cannot imagine. <laughs> him as a 14-year-old emperor. Uh, that's, but your that's son crazy. is so much nicer than any Roman emperor that ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, he hasn't become emperor yet. He hasn't but, tasted power. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, the other interesting side of this is, I mentioned earlier that um, uh, Severus Alexander and his mother, one of their ideas was, all right, let's put the power back in more in the hands of the aristocracy. Uh, let's get it away from the, from the military a bit. And apparently one of the arguments in this is, well, hey, at least with hereditary rule, there's a structure. You know, if, if you're looking at, uh, at an alternative that involves just uh, sort of endless parades of soldier kings, uh, then you know, how are you supposed to work with that? And indeed, I guess you could look at the, uh, the crisis of the third century as an example of what happens when you're ruled mostly by soldier kings trying to murder each other uh, or trying to uh, narrowly avoid being murdered by your own soldiers. Not saying hereditary rule is a great idea, <laughs> but I'm just <laughs> saying you can see where people could maybe waffle back and forth uh, as these different systems result in chaos. I think all of these stories are just a brilliant advertisement for liberal democracy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So these these various imperial stories we've looked at so far, these are mostly just to set the, the stage uh, for the story of Emperor Valerian, 
who reigned 253 through 260, right in the middle of the crisis of the third century. And his too is a tale of blood and doom, but also a good deal more. And and don't worry, if you're out there right now listening to the show and thinking, well, I wonder if there'll be any science in this. Don't worry. We do have a short science paper that ties into everything later on. All right. Uh, I'm going to read another quote from uh, Will Durant because uh, this is another one that I thought was, was rather nice. Uh, and this is, again, from The Collapse of the Empire in the Story of Civilization, Part 3. Quote, the new emperor, Valerian, already 60, and facing war at once with the Franks, the Alemanni, the Marcomanni, the Goths, the Scythians, and the Persians, made his son ruler of the Western Empire, kept the East for himself, and led an army into Mesopotamia. He was too old for his tasks and soon succumbed. Okay, so he's going East to fight. Right, and it's not going to end well. And uh, and granted, Durant's covering a, a lot of territory in these books, so that's basically all he has to say about the episode with Valerian right there. Uh, but but there are other histories, of course, that, that give us a lot more details and uh, and also some questionable details, as we'll get into. So the crisis of the third century, again, saw a number of would-be emperors rise up through the military ranks, and a lot of a lot of them were purely of military stock. Valerian, however, actually came from the senatorial class, so he was, he was essentially a nobleman, and his roles in the state uh, were largely more political f- for the most part earlier on, and it was only later that he was appointed as a dux or leader in the military. And uh, he had two sons, uh, Gallienus and Licinius. Now, to set the stage for Valerian's rule, here's how the three previous rules ended. First of all, there's Emperor Decius, who reigned 249 through 251, died at the Battle of Verona, one of the worst military disasters in Roman history, according to Durant, uh, either of wounds sustained against the enemy or he was assassinated by his own troops. There's, <laughs> there's uh, some uh, discussion over which it was. At home, he had sought to restore Roman morality and ordered the destruction of Christianity. This will become important later on. Oh yeah, because De- so there, uh, there, there has long been a sort of uh, meme ab- among Christians that Christianity was just fundamentally like illegal in the Roman Empire and constantly totally persecuted, which is not actually true. I mean, no. Roman the Romans were absolutely evil, and you wouldn't say tolerant generally, but they were broadly religiously tolerant. They didn't care what people's religion was most of the time, but there would be occasional sporadic outbreaks of persecution of Christians uh, for various reasons. They were accused of being responsible for various calamities because they were they were accused of being atheists, as in not believing in the Roman gods and not making sacrifices to them. And so, you know, not contributing basically to the quid pro quo that kept the gods happy and kept everybody's fate good. Uh, but also, I think they were sometimes accused of sort of disloyalty to the emperor if they wouldn't make a burned offering to Caesar. Um, mm-hmm. So, Occasionally, these persecutions would break out, and I think under Decius was, was if I recall, some of the worst persecution of Christians. Yeah, yeah. It, but, but yeah, like you say, it, it kind of goes emperor to emperor. Uh, so you'll, you'll have a, a period of, and some of these periods, these rules are pretty brief, especially during this period, this, this time period. But uh, yeah, one emperor may just be like, oh, you know, it's all right, whatever. Judaism, Christianity, uh, it's all good. Uh, I, I'm busy with other things. And then someone will come along and say, well, one of the problems here is we have to return to Roman uh, moral values or Roman traditions and Roman rights need to be uh, preserved. 
All right. So that, that was one of the three preceding Valerian. The other was Gallus, who lived, who not lived, but reigned 251 through 253. He was definitely murdered by his own troops. Uh, he also had two co-emperors uh, that died of plague or murder. We're not sure which. And then there's Emilianus, who reigned June through September in the year 253. That's Ooh. a nice short one. He was, guess what? Murdered by his own troops. Mm. So this is just a taste of how unstable, again, the position of emperor was at this time, as Valerian himself is named emperor by Amelanius' own defecting legions. Uh, but even as internal strife at least temporarily slightly settled around this new emperor Valerian, and you have, a, a, you know, I guess, a cessation of just open civil war, uh, there are still plenty of would-be usurpers uh, in the Roman ranks, plus Rome still faces threats from all of its external enemies, including the Sasanian Empire in the east. So Valerian, he puts his son uh, Galienus in charge of the west and occupies himself with the east and the threat posed by the Sasanians in Persia. Okay. And meanwhile, at home, we should also note, coming back to the issue of, of, of Christian persecution, uh, that Valerian is also remembered for the persecution of Christians in Rome. Uh, he had ordered that all must conform to Roman ceremonials and that Christian assemblages are forbidden. And then when Pope uh, Sixtus II resists, the Pope is beheaded and seven of his deacons are executed as well. Christians at the time and even in times thereafter really have a hard time letting this one go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no pity for the Pope killer. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, at this point, I'd like us to turn to the Sasanian Empire because uh, a, a number of you might not be very familiar with what we're talking about here. And, uh, and I wasn't that familiar with the Sasanian Empire either prior to, to this research. Uh, so I turned in part to a book uh, titled Sasanian Iran, 224 through 651 CE by Turaj Dari, an Iranian iranologist and historian at the University of California, Irvine. Um, he's published a number of books over the years, and you also you know, can find various speaking engagements and, and whatnot that he's, um, he's done concerning not only ancient Iran, but also the modern state of, of Iran and global affairs and so forth. So in the openings of the book, um, Dari points some things out about our understanding of ancient history that um, uh, that I thought were very uh, illuminating. Uh, he points out, of course, that ancient history in the West especially is often very Eurocentric, with excessive energy focused on European, Greek, and Roman cultures and histories, which can, of course, come at the expense of understanding other powerful and important cultures. And this is often, he says, utilized to set up this narrative that European and Western power is a kind of continuous success story that extends back through these cultures. But uh, Dari points out that not, not only is such a focus detrimental to understanding, say, the nations bordering the Roman Empire during this time period, but you also can't look at the Roman Empire in a vacuum. You have to, you have to look at, you have to understand the nations that it's interacting with and that it's warring with. Otherwise, you're also denying yourself a full understanding of, say, Rome. Well, yeah, that's true in many ways. I'd say one of the most baseline is remembering that the Roman Empire, when it during its great expansion, most of the people in the Roman Empire were not Romans. They were people living in mm -hmm. conquered territories who were under Roman rule. Yeah, and and in many cases, individuals fighting for uh, the Roman military are auxiliary troops yeah. uh, that are that are brought in from regions outside of uh, of, of Rome proper. Yeah, but it, the, I love this. Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of one of these these things where once it's stated, it seems so obvious. But yeah, it's like um, 
it's like if you were to ask somebody, hey, what's your favorite boxer? And they're like, oh, Muhammad Ali. And then uh, you're like, oh, what was your favorite opponent? And they're like, oh, I don't know any other boxers. I just know Muhammad Ali. <laughs> like, well, you, 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 how much can you really understand uh, this athlete if you don't understand the athletes he competed against and, uh, and mm. with and so forth? Um, uh, you know, that's a, a, an oversimplification. But, uh, but, but yeah, I think this is a, a really valid point. And I have to say, when I, when I think back about when I was first learning about, say, the decline of Rome, I feel like there is this feeling that, holy, Rome is this wounded lion. And you have all these other kingdoms that are sort of snapping at its heels like hyenas. Uh, but this is you know, certainly not the case with the Sasanian Empire. So what was the Sasanian Empire, um, sometimes called the Empire of the Iranians or the Neo-Persian Empire? Well, it all begins with the reign of Adashir I, also known as Adashir the Unifier, who indeed unified the Iranian plateau in 224. You'll remember him from just a little bit earlier as the ruler who tangles with Severus Alexander. So Dere writes that it was an enormous undertaking to unite the Iranian plateau under one rule at this time. But the exact origins of the House of Sasan and uh, Adashir I are somewhat shrouded in mystery. He apparently picked Sasan as the name for his house, uh, as it may have been the name of a protective deity, but uh, I don't think we know for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and it seems uh, that while Adashir may have had a background in Zoroastrianism. So his father, um, Pabag, may have been a fire temple priest. He was a, still essentially an upstart. And I thought this passage from Dere is, uh, is rather illuminating. Quote, Furthermore, it was claimed that Adashir was Adashir the Kayanid, the son of Pabag, of the race of Sasain, from the family of King Dare. When looking at this line, one gets the sense that every possible connection to divinity, royalty, and nobility was evoked by Ardashir, which can only mean that he was none of them. <laughs> so another example of the powerful tinkering with history, right? The falsification uh -huh. of one's lineage to tie in with the, the noble, the royal, and the divine. You know, sometimes when I look at these ancient rulers and I see the... Um I know there's a specific term for this, but I forget what it is. You know, the list of prestigious things that would be said after their name. So it's King whatever, you know, uh, and then uh, yeah, all these associations with nobility, lineage, uh, deity, royalty and stuff. It reminds me of keyword stuffing in the like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that, that era where you and I first started getting into digital content on the internet uh, and all these companies that we were competing with were doing this thing where they would try to rank higher in Google results by just loading tons of irrelevant metadata garbage into every page. So it's like, is this page really about Metallica? No, but it's in the meta. Yeah, yeah, the meta keywords, uh, that list is longer than the actual post, right? So Ardashir I is definitely bringing the metadata here, but I, but I should drive home, he does have the power to back it up. This is just about securing the power, um, supporting the power by making these, uh, perhaps making these claims to uh, divinity, royalty, and nobility. Now, in gaining this power, though, uh, Ardashir I uh, possibly won this, uh, the, the, his rule through conflict, not only with rival Iranian kings, but perhaps even family members. So in piecing together the histories, uh, um, Dare mentions that uh, Ardashir's father may have dethroned an important king, and Ardashir then, uh, then may have taken uh, to the field of battle uh, against his own brother, 
uh, but his brother died unexpectedly before this battle could occur. This raises the specter of possible assassination. Uh, we're not, we will never know for sure. But yeah, he seemingly perhaps rebelled against his own father and against or against his own brother after his father's death. So there's, there's infighting in the family on this ascension toward uh, becoming the king of kings. Um, he also has this decade-long war against Ardawan IV, uh, further expansions uh, across the, uh, the Iranian plateau, challenges from other local warlords. Uh, some of these warlords are fighting on Ardawan IV's behalf. Uh, Ardashir I also has to deal with challenges from other brothers. And finally, Ardawan IV, his main rival, takes the field with his armies against Ardashir I and perishes. Ardashir I becomes the king of kings, and the Sasanian Empire is born. Now, as we already alluded to, Ardashir I expands his territory from here and eventually enters into conflict with Rome over Syria and Asia Minor. And there's, there's really no clear winner to this conflict. Uh, now, certainly, uh, Alexander Severus and his mother you know, celebrate that they have, uh, they have some sort of a victory here. But it sounds like both sides were somewhat reduced and exhausted uh, by this whole um, uh, series of battles, and no one was truly victorious uh, but Alexander Severus is able to hold on to Roman territory here in, in, uh, in Asia Minor. But after his death, the Sasanians are able to then annex several regions. Uh, Dare notes, uh, however, that Ardashir, the first challenge to Rome, was probably not mere expansionist hubris, uh, as Alexander's letter alleges that it is, but that it was probably an attempt to stave off further Roman expansion into their region. This is one of the nasty problems of the imperial mindset, right? So you have mm -hmm. empires with borders touching. You can always justify uh, conquest and expansion of borders, which means killing people, you know, military yeah. expansion as defensive because it's like, well, I got to get more of a buffer out, you know, out from my territory because what if they do it to me? Exactly. Yeah. And so you have all these these peoples in between these empires that are that are really seeing the some of the worst of it. And uh, yeah, the, the imperial mindset on both sides, like you say. So the important thing to keep in mind, I know I'm throwing a lot of names out there, but uh, yeah, Ardashir I, this is the beginning of the Sasanian Empire. Uh, he consolidates power. He is a true threat. Um, uh, he's already uh, engaging in warfare against the Romans. Uh, but then Ardashir I does, again, what, is, what seems, may seem unthinkable at the time. He retires. Uh, and passes leadership on to his son. And his son is Shabur I. Uh, and he, uh, Shabur I becomes the leader of uh, the Sasanian Empire in 240. And this is the ruler that comes into direct conflict with Emperor Valerian. Okay. Now note that it would be 20 years before Valerian's fall at this point at the Battle of Edessa and 30 years before uh, Shabur's reign ends due to death from illness. So while Rome is racked by instability and infighting during this time period, the Sasanian Empire is actually incredibly strong. Now that's not to say that there aren't dynastic squabbles going on uh, in the Sasanian Empire under Shabur. There, there are. Uh, he's still having to deal with with uh, challenges from e even some of his other brothers, uh, you know, other potential usurpers. So it's not not saying that the kingdom is one hundred percent peaceful, but during this time period, uh, when there's so much turmoil, especially going on in the Roman Empire, the Sasanian Empire is pretty solid. 
Now, Shabur I had been well prepared for rule, uh, according to the, the sources I was uh, reading here, um, especially Dare. Uh, he, he had accompanied his father on the battlefield, ensuring that he was just ready to take the, the fight to his enemies, including whoever happened to be calling themselves Roman emperor at any given moment. And of course, it changes a lot. And of course, battles continue between the two uh, empires in Mesopotamia. In fact, in 243, Roman Emperor Gordian III invades Mesopotamia in an attempt to retake territory that had been previously held by Rome under Alexander Severus with an auxiliary army of mostly Gothic and German soldiers. And that following year, Gordian III is dead. Shabur I claims that he killed the emperor in battle, but it seems like possibly the truth here is that the emperor died away from any known battles and might have been, guess what, killed by his own soldiers. But again, we see the fluid and power-serving nature of histories here. If you're Shabur I and you know that uh, during the, the conflicts that you're engaging in against the Roman emperor, that the Roman emperor is dead, might as well go ahead and claim that kill for you, at least your troops, if not you personally. And that, that was will, only, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll back up your, your power. And then after this, the, uh, the following emperor uh, the, uh, makes concessions, essentially becomes a tributary, if you will, and this is the way that the Sasanians end up framing it. Uh, and, and in 260, Shabur pushes further into Mesopotamia and comes into conflict with Emperor Valerian. So at this point, yeah, we're going to get to the Battle of Edessa. This is the, the crucial battle in this whole scenario. It counts among the worst Roman military disasters in history. Uh, on one hand, again, we have the forces of the Sasanian Empire under Shabur I, and here we have Roman forces under Emperor Valerian. So one of my chief sources here was Udo Hartmann's The Third Century Crisis from the Encyclopedia of Ancient Battles that came out in 2017, which provides a nice summary of what we know and what some of the histories say concerning uh, the Battle of Edessa and its aftermath. So let's go ahead and hit the basics here. Okay, so where is this taking place? Uh, for the most part, we're talking about Edessa, an ancient city in what is now Turkey. Uh, more precisely, this battle may have occurred somewhere between the cities of Kare and Edessa. When did this occur? This is, again, the year 260, and it's spring. And then we have the two forces. Well, so let's start with the Roman forces. This is the one we actually have some numbers on, whether those numbers are correct or not, as a matter of discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know for sure exactly what the troop count was, but Shabur the first puts it at 70,000, which is probably an exaggeration to enhance his victory. But, um, but Dere gives us 60,000. Um, it, it does seem that Valerian had pretty strong numbers, bolstered by troops originally stationed to the north of Rome to deal with Germanic threats. And so essentially the troops here under, under Valerian, it's going to be some makeup of Roman, Germanic, and Gothic troops. Uh, that seems a safe assumption. Okay, so tens of thousands at least. The, this is, they're yeah. not playing around. Yeah, no, I haven't seen anybody suggesting that this is just a, a small ragtag group. Now, this is this is a large army led by an emperor of Rome. So, uh, you know, it's 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 not to be underestimated. On the other hand, we have the Sasanian forces here, and this numbers here seem to just be unknown. I haven't even run across a source that ventures a guess at what the numbers were. Uh, though I suppose we, you know, you, you could probably loosely speculate if you roll through some of the possible scenarios about just how large the force might need to be to pull off the victory. Though we have to remember that troop size alone is not necessarily a determinant for victory, nor is fighting strength. Um, I, I 
try, I go back to um, some of the writings of, um, of Brett uh, Devereaux, who uh, has a wonderful uh, history blog about ancient battles. Uh, and he always points out, quote, the question is always achieving strategic objectives and that that is ultimately more important than the fighting strength. So you'll have certain ancient armies, for example, that you, know, you can say their fighting strength was, was greater than this other force, but are they able to pull, pull off uh, strategic objectives? Uh, are, are the other mechanisms of warfare working in their favor? Devereaux's blog, by the way, is a collection of unmitigated pedantry. Uh, well worth checking out if you're interested in ancient warfare, as well as sort of the echoes of ancient warfare that you find in things like uh, The Lord of the Rings, the books in the movies, or the movie 300, <laughs> for example, uh, things of that nature. He, he does a great job dissecting them and talking about like what the, the history actually tells us. You know, this also reminds me of something that came up in uh, episodes we did a few years ago about uh, warfare between ant colonies, which is a principle in warfare scholarship, sometimes known as uh, Lanchester's Laws, Lanchester's Linear Law and Lanchester's Square Law. Mm -hmm. They're not actually laws. They're not laws of nature. They're just approximations modeling uh, how different types of battles tend to work in reality. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to gloss over some of the details here, but basically my memory is that it found that, you know, it really like the individual effectiveness of units and tactics are usually more decisive in ancient combat than they are in modern combat. Because in shooting wars where uh, where individual, uh, you know, tanks or, or, or soldiers can uh, basically shoot in any direction at any time, can engage in any direction at any time, what you always want is to have overwhelming numbers. You know, you would rather uh, defeat the enemy in detail, so attack small small units of theirs with larger units of yours. So you suffer minimal losses and do that over and over again. But in ancient combat, uh, like individual little tactical decisions could swing things wildly in the favor of smaller armies. Yeah. And then if you, you throw in additional factors that are definitely in play during this time, including potential mutinies uh, from your own troops, uh, plague and illness, uh, and some of, the, some of the other factors that we'll get into that may have been in play, particularly at the Battle of Edessa. Go back and listen to the Ant Wars episodes if you want more detail on the, the Lanchester's Laws. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, so at this point, you know, you might you might wonder like, okay, are they going to really get into the nitty-gritty here about the movements of the troops and so forth? Is this going to be like one of those battles that they teach uh, where they talk about, all right, this is where Valerian went wrong here and here. This is These are the advantages that the Sasanians had tactically. Uh, no, uh, this is one of those battles where uh, even if we wanted to get into, into those sorts of details, we just don't have them. Um, we, we don't know exactly how the battle proceeded. There are some different versions of how it might have gone, and we'll get into that. However, the immediate outcome is not in question. The, the Sasanians secure absolute victory over the Roman forces. Emperor Valerian and some of his senators and soldiers are taken as prisoners. And while the Sasanians seem to have suffered minimal casualties, the Roman losses, uh, I mean, some estimates put them at like 60,000 or so. Um, it's, uh, so it's just, again, a complete military disaster for the Roman forces. And so you're probably wondering, uh, okay, even in a, an age... Uh, full of emperors and kings and, and, and in which emperors and kings are, are, are often present at the battles and sometimes die in battles. We've already looked at a, an example or two of that. How is it that a disaster of this magnitude can take place? How can you wind up with your emperor uh, in the hands of the enemy forces without them having actually uh, you know, in, invaded Rome or something of that nature? Hmm. Well, as Hartman summarizes, we basically have three different accounts in the Western histories uh, of what happened. And again, we have to acknowledge that some or all of them have agendas in their telling. So first of all, there's the, the Zosimus account. Zosimus is writing at the, the dawn of the 6th century. Uh, this version goes basically, Valerian is cowardly. He wants to settle things financially, which we have to mention is a tool that had been used by the Romans before, you know, just meet with the, the enemy, pay the enemy, and we can, you know, put this off for a while. Uh, but uh, this story goes that uh, Shabur the first rejects 
Valerian's envoy and says, hey, I'm only going to deal with the emperor himself. And then Valerian says, okay, that sounds fine. They meet and Valerian is taken prisoner. Okay, so it would seem based on this that this account is attempting to make Valerian look weak and cowardly and Shabur look devious. Right. And apparently this is a common trend. And we can see as well, uh, Hartman points this out, that like this is a, a classic way of trying to take the blame away from Rome and the Roman military itself, a way to sort of excuse the loss by saying, well... The, the Rome is strong, the, the military is strong, but unfortunately we had a cowardly emperor here and we had a very dastardly opponent. What can you do? Now, a couple of, of later, uh, this is centuries later, uh, historians give us a different version. This comes to us from um, George Sincellus, who died sometime after 810, and uh, Zonaris, who lived uh, something like 1070 through 1140. And in these accounts, uh, Valerian's forces were actually besieged in Edessa, and they were facing starvation there. Valerian, fearful of a military mutiny, chose to surrender to the Sasanian forces uh, and only went through the motions of resistance. Casualties end up being pretty low because some of the Roman forces recognize the deception and flee. Oh, so is it possible, again, if, if there's any truth to this, is it possible that Valerian's like, I might actually have a better chance of surviving personally if I'm taken prisoner by the enemy than if I'm left here with my own troops. Yeah, that seems to be the idea that they're getting out of here. And, and again, this this is so brief. Uh, it seems like there are a number of plot holes that might emerge here. Like, well, how are they? How are the Roman forces uh, fleeing? Are they? You know, are the how? What are the exact conditions of the siege, etc.? We don't know. Uh, this is just one idea. But Zonaris has another account uh, that's interesting that, uh, again, Hartman shares here. And in this one, Shabur I has Edessa besieged, but Valerian's forces are not in the city of Edessa. They're arriving uh, uh, outside of all of this. They see the siege going on, and they see that the Sasanian forces are really, uh, really big, perhaps larger than their own. It's you know, a very imposing force. So they're reluctant to attack. But then they get intelligence that tells them that the Edessian forces are mounting a promising counterattack against the besiegers, against the Sasanians. And so Valerian decides, well, this is our chance. This is our opportunity. And they need to attack now. But then they end up routed and surrounded by the Sasanian army and taken prisoner. So it's kind of interesting to, to look at these different things and sort of try and piece together the sort of situation that might have happened. Uh, again, thinking about these tensions involving a potential besiegement, either of Roman forces or of another player in the conflict. Um, the, the possibility of uh, then of Valerian having to deal with potential uh, mutinies occurring within his own ranks, potential desertions, and perhaps weighing like who he has a better chance of survival with, uh, perhaps a situation where he's dealing with potential mutinies and wants to work out some sort of a deal, but do so without uh, without getting himself killed by his own troops. Uh, it seems like there may have been a lot of factors at play here. Mm-hmm. But, as, again, as Hartman points out, when, when it comes to Western sources, the two main narratives seem to have agendas. One is that, yeah, we're going to cover for the Roman loss by putting the blame on Valerian and the enemy. And then for Christian historians, uh, some in like the, essentially the immediate aftermath of all of this, this is a situation where God is punishing Valerian. 
Valerian was hostile towards Christians in the Roman Empire. You know, he was he he persecuted Christians, and so the idea here is that God Himself is punishing Valerian for what he has done. A trope that remains popular up until today. There is always the temptation uh, within a within a, a you know a belief in a system of divine justice to say that when my enemy has suffered a bad fate, it's because of the bad things they did. They they're finally getting their comeuppance. Right, right, and again, that can be not only foreign enemies, but um, but they can be domestic enemies. They can be uh, you know rival or previous emperors. When you say, well, they weren't right with God. So this is what happens. We need to get an emperor in there who is right with God. And, uh, and of course, any of these uh, kings, especially in this age, there's going to be some degree of religious tinkering of their stories. Like, I'm king because I'm right with God. I mean, I've got divine blood in, uh, inside my body. Uh, I, you know, I hearken back to divine kings, etc. So there's a lot of this going around. Well, looking at the time, I think we're going to have to call this episode right here and say this is part one of this talk, but we will get into some surprising territory next time, not only about uh, history and historiography, about the uh, the idea of the dethroned prisoner emperor of Rome, uh, but also into some su- surprising microbiology territory. Yeah, I was really surprised this came up as well, but uh, I look forward to talking about this in the next episode. But for now, yes, uh, this is a good good stopping point, kind of a cliffhanger, because at this point, you know, the Roman army has been defeated, and Emperor Valerian is a captive of the Sasanian Empire. What's going to happen next? Well, there's a lot of discussion about what happens next. All right, so come join us again on Thursday as we continue this uh, historic and ultimately scientific uh, investigation. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Our core science and culture episodes publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but on Wednesday we do a short form artifact or monster fact. On Mondays we do listener mail, and on Fridays we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 